through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Joey Watson here. Yes, this is Out of the Box. This is your first time you've lent us your ears. Thanks. Every Thursday from midday to one and on podcast, we get to sit down with one person and roll through their records and their stories. Today, Rick Morton. Rick is a journalist and writer. Up until just last week, he was writing about social affairs at the Australian newspaper. He's been doing it for a few years now, and he's developed a significant following for his work. But Rick's own story is a social affairs scoop like no other. When Rick was little, growing up in the extremely remote and dusty Queensland outback, a terrible accident was followed by the breakup of his family. His mum and siblings were driven out of the family home into a poverty that they never quite managed to escape. Rick has written a memoir, it's called 100 Years of Dirt, and today, Rick, a warm welcome to this show out of the box. Joey, thank you for having me. Rick, I mentioned your early childhood mm. was in outback Queensland. How, how remote are we talking? Can you we're give talking, me an idea? Yeah, we're, we're so far west in Queensland that we're almost in South Australia, so it's about 15 hours west of Brisbane as the crow flies. Um, I don't know what that is in kilometres. It's like 1,200 kilometres. It's a long drive. It's a long drive. You you get very bored very easily. What's the weather like out there? Uh, It's hot as um, Hades in summer and really cold in winter um, because there's no clouds to keep the the warmth in. So you get up to like 50 degrees. Dust storms? A lot of dust storms. Dust storms were kind of this um, periodic blight on the landscape, which I loved as a kid because it was just apocalyptic. You just saw red. What happens in a dust storm? They're actually, uh, they can be quite scary. Because, um, you know, the ones that my dad had where he grew up in, in on Pandy Pandy Station, which was in South Australia, they were so bad that you had to take the dust out with wheelbarrows and shovels as opposed to broom and dustpan. Um, but, you know, they the sand would get in the eyes of the livestock and the, the eyes of your dogs. Um, there was these stories about this baby that had been left in a cot in one of the station houses during a dust storm and they came in to check it and it was covered in sand. Like it just dumps, you know, all of this topsoil that's been carried through these updrafts for, you know, hundreds, thousands of kilometres. How long does a dust storm last for? Um, sometimes only an hour or so, and sometimes they can just hang around depending on the, the weather at the time. But normally they blow through quite quickly, and there's a lot of, um, we call them dust devils, um, or like little sand tornadoes that come with them, and they're quite ferocious, and they can blow things over and, and all the rest of it. You know, I, you know, all kids love bad weather, I think, yeah. <laughs> and I, um, I loved it. I thought it was great. <laughs> Tell me about the property that you grew up on. Yeah, so the one that I grew up on, my dad, um, having come from a long line of cattle station kind of barons, my dad thought the property that I grew up on was small, um, it, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was um, 1,000 square kilometres, um, and which is big. <laughs> That's huge, 1,000 square kilometres. Yeah. What, what was your dad living on before that? Well, so he was on 6,600 square kilometres, which is 1.6 million acres. That's like a small nation state. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, my grandfather owned seven stations the size of Belgium. So not even a small nation state. I mean, the, you, it's like Liechtenstein is nothing. Um, so my dad's nickname when he was growing up was actually Acre because he was one of 1.6 million and that was nothing. Like he's just this weedy, weedy bloke. Um, I mean, it's it's almost, I mean, even living out there, it's impossible to really understand the the expanse. I mean, there is just so much of it. And, you know, I think, you know, the one I grew up on is a thousand square kilometres. So it's a hundred kilometres in each, on each kind of axis and which is bigger than Greater Sydney um, when you think about it. Well, much bigger than Greater Sydney. <laughs> now, now we've got our geographical bearing. How do you go to school in that kind yeah. of environment? Well, not often. <laughs> so we, we did what um, colloquially we called it School of the Air. Um, but it's technically called School of Distance Education. And so we just had a wireless two-way radio. And all the kids in my class, for example, there were six of us, and we would all just come into the radio room in our different cattle stations and there'd be these teachers in these basically radio studios in Charleville for us, and they would conduct lessons over the radio. So, you know, if you wanted to answer a question, you had to shout your name out. So, like, my whole early childhood was just me going, Ricky! That's incredible. Um, yeah. It sounds like something from the 1930s, but we're just talking well, about the 80s. And that's yeah. the funny thing is because, yes, um, the, the outback is always a couple of decades behind. <laughs> <laughs> a 
Like now the kids have internet and they do bloody school of the air over online classrooms, which I think is cheating. Personally, I think they've, they've gone soft. If you're not going radio, then it's nothing. Radio's old school, man. And it also meant like you only really had a half hour class every day and the rest they'd mail out your workbooks, right? So pretty much whether we spent time in school or not was whether mum was busy or not with other stuff on the station. So half the time we'd just do three hours in the morning and then we'd bugger off. Was that... that- kind of uh, old school rural expectation that you'd help out on the property yeah, as well yeah um particularly for my brother who was much more um genetically designed for that kind of work um i was a bit of a um i had very weak <laughs> limbs and i was very odd <clears throat> as a child so i wasn't much used to anyone <laughs> but i used to just follow my brother around anyway uh, what's the role of a of a governess in the outback yeah so we um it's it's again it's such an old school you know, governesses were big in the Victorian England times, um, but in outback Australia, governesses basically are uh, teachers. They come out with teachers and babysitters, and it's often young women who would just come out because they want a taste for this romantic outback life, which is anything but. And they kind of come out, and they're meant to be the ones that go through the schoolwork with you and do your lessons and kind of look after you while your parents are working the important work, which is making sure the stock get fed and mustered and the jackaroos are all cooked for, which was mum's job. And um, so we had um, three governesses in the short time that I was on Mount Howard Station, and they never worked out that well. <laughs> Let's start with the first one. What, what yeah. was she like? Um, she, I think, was woefully unprepared. Like, she drove out from Brisbane, I think, in her Toyota Corolla, <laughs> which is um, not a four-wheel drive for those playing along at home, and got bogged in the bull dust on the way into our station. And bull dust is this kind of dirt that just gets ground up so finely by the three um, trailer semis that come to cart cattle it's just so fine that you're it's like quicksand and so she did she lasted a week i mean she was just not at all prepared i think for the harshness of that reality because it is quite shocking if you're not born into it um so yeah so she was very she was in and out and how how did she compare to the ones that came after well she was the nicest one probably because we didn't get to experience the full unraveling of her potential (laughs) (laughs) but uh, the second one that we had allison um beat my brother over the face with an iron bar because he was very chatty and um, a bad kid. Not a bad kid, but like a, a typical boy, right? But she was just not a very nice person. How old was your brother? Uh, I would have been five or so, so he would have been seven or eight. Um, yeah. Was she charged for that? Yeah, there yeah. We went to court, actually, and I, um, I remember quite vividly being told I w- might need to give evidence, but my brother definitely did, and I remember waiting in the little side room at court. Presumably we were in Coopy or Charleville, and I remember waiting for my turn um, and not being able to watch my brother give the evidence. But um, I think it was all done and dusted, and then they didn't call me. And then she got um, charged and found guilty. And I don't know what happened with her. I mean, I know where she is now. I looked her up on Facebook. <laughs> Just as like this, like two years ago, I'm like, Mum, what's her last name? I won't say it here, obviously. But I looked her up on Facebook, and she's just living her life. And it was quite weird because like, I remember early on in my life, she was a villain. Like she was the one that hit my brother and made us go through all this whole rigmarole of judicial system. Uh, that's defining. You're watching your eight-year-old brother give evidence in court. I mean, you you kind of roll over it now. But yeah, I was terrified at the time because it's such. I mean, you know, even now as a journalist, I have to cover court, but and it's such a daunting prospect even to cover it when you're not involved at all in the cases. But it's such a. I mean, you know, I was so sheltered um, as a five-year-old, but I was still sheltered as an eighteen-year-old, and so the kind of the level of grown-up responsibility that gets attached to you at such a young age is actually, I, I think, quite transformative in a way. Like, it just makes you aware of these things you probably shouldn't be aware of as a kid. Mm. That wasn't the most defining event when no, it came to your brother's I think it gets swept under. <laughs> Can I nudge you towards the day of the accident? Yeah, would kind of shape your lives at that stage. Yeah, so this was um, a year or two later. So I was uh, seven and my brother was nine. Um, and so that it's basically one day that separates my life into these two eras. It's kind of like BC and AD. Um, and it was Father's Day 1994, September. Um, and it was just a, it was a normal kind of, um, I guess, spring day in outback Queensland, but it was very hot because it always is. <laughs> and me and my brother were out, uh, Toby, were out shooting crows for fun. And then it got so hot that we just took shelter in this really long shed on the property. And it's the shed where all the graders and tractors and utes were kept because it's where all the maintenance was done. And my brother just started helping out this jackaroo or station hand 
um, fix a motorbike. And while that was happening, the, the Jackaroo lost a bolt from the motorbike into this car servicing pit, which is, you know, it's this, it's this, it is a pit and you can stand, a full-grown man can stand up underneath a car and just let all the oil out and all the rest of it. And so nothing was untoward. I mean, he just sent my brother down to get this bolt in this pit that we'd played in so many times before. But it was so dark down there, but my brother couldn't see. And he said to the jackaroo, oh, do you have a torch? And the jackaroo said, no, I don't, but I've got a lighter. And I, being me, I never actually did anything useful, but I was looking over the edge of the pit going, trying to help him find the, the bolt. And my brother got the lighter and he flicked it and the whole thing went up in this giant fireball like giant like it singed I, I made jokes about it for years afterwards that I was there too because it singed all of my hair off on one side of my head but my brother was in it and I just remember him screaming like I've never heard screams before and the jackaroo tried to wrench him out of there but he was so hot to the touch that the jackaroo got burnt and it wasn't until my father came running having heard the screams from the stables about 400 metres away I suppose and he came running and just did that superhuman dad thing that parents do and just pulled him out of this pit and I remember him being cradled in my dad's arms and just seeing all the skin hanging off him like curtains um it looked like glad wrap actually just unspooled from his arm and my dad kind of just not saying anything but running to the homestead which was probably 500 meters away and me kind of half running beside him not knowing exactly like I knew it was bad but I didn't know what was going to happen next and it was just, there was no words being spoken, just loud noises. You're a hell of a long way from a hospital. Yeah, we're three hours from a hospital by road, um, five hours from a better hospital, <laughs> and 15 hours by road from the one hospital that can actually treat burns properly. Who, who takes him? So uh, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, amazing, amazing um, outback, um, kind of outback institution, really. And the only reason people can still live in the outback is because we, we got the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And so they've got this amazing thing. Every cattle station or station out there has a, what we call a medicine chest, and it's stocked by the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and it, they've all got numbered medicines in them. And they're medicines that you couldn't get over the counter or even without a prescription um, because you're isolated. And so the over the radio, the same radio we use for our classroom uh, lessons, they're giving medical advice going all right you need to get a number two out of the medicine chest you need to knock up 10 millimeters and inject it in his right thigh and they're kind of giving this this really dispassionate instructions to really panicked parents and our next door neighbors are called they come screaming over from about 40 minutes away to help and then the royal flying doctor service the actual plane has to leave the birdsville races where they were looking after drunk people during the day fly back to Charleville where their base is to refuel and then fly out to our station. So I think my brother was burned at 2.30pm. By the time they land and have him stabilised on the runway because they thought they wouldn't be able to get a drip in, in the air, it's almost dark. And they're not allowed to take off in the dark um, because of kangaroos. So how long was it before he was able to, to go? Uh, so we the only reason we could get them off the ground was because me and my dad then went and lit filled all these old beetroot tins with kerosene and then put them along this dirt runway and lit them so they could actually see <laughs> whether, whether they were driving the plane, I guess. And I remember it so vividly. Um, my, I should say at this point that my sister had just been born. <laughs> She's three weeks old. So my mum, my brother gets loaded on the plane. My mum with my newborn baby sister gets on and I go to follow her and she kind of turns around and she says, there's no room. Um, you have to stay here and be strong for your dad. And they kind of get on the plane and they fly off into pitch black. And I just hear the engines kind of fading away, fading away slowly. And then I remember nothing for two weeks. Just like I don't even remember leaving the airstrip, which is really frustrating because <laughs> I have a pretty good memory mm. of almost everything else in my life. And I don't know what happened in those two weeks. And I don't know how bad it was in terms of just being isolated and alone with my dad who I was not particularly close to um, he wasn't abusive to me um, but he also wasn't very emotionally well connected with anyone around him and that was probably the most um, heartbreaking thing that ever happened in his life and the governess is there as well oh yeah so this is the third one um, the one that we also got unlucky with 
tell me about that. Yeah, so Vanessa um, is 19. So she's our, she's been our governess for a couple of, kind of on and off. So for a couple of months she um, was there originally and then she took off for a bit and then she came back. And during this time, so when my memory does kick back in, it's because I catch my dad beginning or continuing an affair with this 19-year-old governess. My dad's 34 at this point. And I caught them because I was home alone while my brother was in hospital you know, 1,100 kilometres away. And I snuck out of the shower one night and kind of crept down the stairs and went to surprise Dad. And she was sitting on his lap in his Jason recliner in the station. And I remember, like, I was seven. And I remember thinking, well, that's a bit weird. But whatever. Maybe no harm will come of it. And then I called them kissing two nights later after dinner when I was trying to return my dessert bowl. Um, never return your dessert bowl. <laughs> so that's the lesson I took away from that. Um, and that's when I knew that something bad had happened. I didn't have the language for it. I didn't know how to describe what it was. Um, but I had all of the feelings and sensations that I knew that something earth-shattering was taking place and that things would never be the same again, ever, which is an impossible kind of realisation for a seven-year-old. <laughs> and it's something you kind of carry with you for the rest of your life, I think. Rick, with that momentous couple <laughs> of weeks, we have to go to some music now. Yeah. What should we play off the top? Well, I think, you know, the first song that comes to mind is, and it's kind of a song of <clears throat> happy memories, but also of that trip to go see my brother for the first time with my dad in the hospital, which he, which we waited weeks for. <clears throat> and it's this song, um, When You Walk in the Room by The Sports, which is, I don't even know what year it's from. I'm assuming it's 60s or something like that. But it was one of the songs that my dad loved um, the most and it was the one that we kind of had on our road trip um, holiday mix on this cassette tape. And I just remember we had it whenever we drove anywhere long. So, you know, when we were making that trip between Aramanga, where we were based basically, to Brisbane, just these kind of like this red open world everywhere and the road that vanished off into the distance and this kind of weirdly upbeat song <laughs> about how happy someone feels when uh, this kind of person walks into the room. was the sports there some classic australian rock the song when you walk into the room it was uh, taken from the memories of rick morton he is my guest on out of the box today rick once you told your your mum or once your old man told your mum about the affair (laughs) i don't think he even mentioned it to be quite honest but how did that come out it kind of was just understood by the time she returned from hospital like, I didn't have the guts to tell her. I didn't have the words to tell her. I just knew something bad had happened. And he didn't really say, I'm having an affair with Vanessa. It was just something that was understood. Well, as it became apparent, how did your mum respond? Well, I mean, she tells this story. I mean, again, we were with her at this point. We were back on the station. And my dad had kind of taken the governess away 
half an hour and left her at a dam because he knew stuff was going to go down. So he'd essentially hidden her <laughs> at this inaccessible part of the property. And my mum just genuinely wanted to take one of the rifles off the, the wall of the office, and there were 11. This is pre-Port Arthur, so they were just hanging on the wall. And she just wanted to take a rifle and, and shoot them both. Um, that was her very Deb Morton style. <laughs> um, impulsive, um, fierce, <laughs> independent. But she, she's also a religious woman, and she, she maintains to this day that there was a voice that kind of said to her, what about your children? Because then they'll have lost everything. So what actually happened? So dad kicked us out. Um, he froze the bank accounts. Um, he left us with nothing, um, literally nothing. I mean, mum didn't work independently. She worked for him, for the station. And so she had no income. She had no savings um, that she could access because he froze them. And we ended up living in emergency public housing in Charleville, which was the nearest big town. Tell spot. me about Charleville. What's that, what's that sort of spot like? Charleville's, um, it's the biggest town in southwest Queensland. So to us, it was a, <laughs> a thriving metropolis. <laughs> um, but there really ain't a lot going on there. And, you know, a lot of the people who kind of, who feed that town are the pastoralists who don't live in it. And so the people who live in town are the people who run the shops or the people who are just kind of stuck. And there's a lot of them. And the public housing part of Charleville is really big. And a lot of people were just really down on their luck, like so, us. Tell me about the street that you were living on, for instance. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before and, in a way, haven't seen since because it was, you know, I remember just... It was, it was, it was one of the worst times <laughs> of our lives. I remember it being a bad time. It, I can't imagine what it was like for mum. But we get into this house, there's nothing there. It's, uh, there's no garden. There's, it's not beautiful in any stretch of the imagination. And then... All of the neighbours, just on any given night, you just hear screaming, just proper screaming arguments, physical fights, windows being smashed. And I, at first, just thought people were having parties all the time because I'd been to the Aramanga Rodeo every Saturday night before Chris, um, before Easter every year, and I knew what a, part, a drunk party sounded like. Um, but it wasn't that. It was domestic violence. And it was just a really haunting haunting sound and like we had we were robbed within the first week of being there before we'd even moved in properly um we were robbed and then we all got the chicken pox in this stupid house <laughs> and i just remember my brother's obviously newly out of hospital and my sister's still a newborn and my mum's changing his burns bandages every day and having to bathe him um which really hurts him and then changing my sister's nappies and then we all got the chicken pox and she's alone you know, um, a thousand, well, probably at that point, 800 kilometres from all of her relatives. So you mentioned your dad had frozen the bank accounts. Yeah. Did you have any income at all as a family? No. <laughs> well, I mean, as uh, not at that point. It was all government welfare, um, which um, takes a while to kick in anyway. So when, you know, when we first left the station, we had nothing. Um, we had friends in Charleville, thank God, who came and got us, picked us up, took us to all the government appointments. Um gave us second-hand furniture for this house. Um, but Mum had no way of getting us even moved somewhere else. She gave us the choice because we were bush babies. She's like, do you want to stay here or do you want to go somewhere else? And we chose Boona, where her brother had lived, uh, had moved, um, kind of southwest of Brisbane. Um, but she had to kind of get us there. <laughs> and that was quite, quite hard. She ended up having to borrow money from her brother's and pooling her kind of, um, I don't know if it, even if it was parenting payment, then it must have been, and putting us on a sleeper train. So now we've got a single mother, three kids. Yeah. How how meticulous did she have to be with the bills? She, I mean, to within five cents of everything. I mean, she knew what she had on her to within five cents every day because if you stuff that up, then you get yourself caught in this cycle that becomes progressively worse. I mean, if you miss a bill there's a $15 late payment fee that gets added on top um, which doesn't sound like a lot of money but to her it's everything and so she had to get up every morning and do the sums um, it's one of the defining features of my childhood actually is watching her either in the morning or at night balance the books and she'd sit there with a notebook and just do sums does that mean that you were very aware of the kind of abject level of poverty that you were living in as a kid? I was very aware of the the fact that things were tight. My mum did her best to keep it from us, but I was, even though I wasn't the oldest, I was the most mature out of my brother and I. 
and my sister was much younger. So I was kind of by default the one that mum shared all this stuff with. And so I knew that she was having trouble paying the bills. I knew that we couldn't have all the nice things that um, to, a, to a degree we were used to. We were never spoiled because dad was not that kind of person, but we had money before, um, or at least he did. <laughs> but, um, you know, mum, not only did we not have any money to start off with, but mum had been out of the, the workforce for 15 years not only out of the workforce, but not even in a city. She'd been working cattle stations with, and then looking after kids, so she had no skills at all, really. Um, and so I kind of knew that things were bad. I would never really discover how bad they were until I actually was exposed to the world more broadly and realised how other people lived. Because <laughs> it's kind of like, you don't know what you don't know, right? And it's not until you see wealth for the first time that you really start to think about how badly we were doing some more music how does the beach boys come to you yeah. in this kind of complete state of precarity it's it's interesting because um again like so most of the music from my childhood was dad's music and, and then when this kind of family broke down mum had three records and it was elton john billy joel and the beach boys best of the beach boys and my favorite song was kokomo and i think even then i didn't know what kokomo was about so i just read my own meaning into it and i to me it was about this bloke having this fabulous holiday and wanting to take his best person with him. And I used to just sit there dreaming, listening to it. And I, I used to sing it to mum because there's a line in there that's like, Bermuda, Bahama, come on, pretty mama. And so I used to just sing it to her. Not Like, I'm like, she's pretty mama. Like, do. It's a bit embarrassing now, but like, whatever. Um, I had no idea. But I used to just kind of, it, just, it, it felt like a holiday, right? And it felt like I could plan this future for myself where that was available to me, where we could just go away and forget our problems, and so it became this kind of uh, this kind of soundtrack to hope. Get your glimpse 
The Beach Boys there with Kokomo, brought in by Rick Morton. He uh, was the social affairs writer uh, at the Australian newspaper until recently. Uh, his recent memoir was A Hundred Years of Dirt. It's a big story. You can cop that at your local book peddler. Rick, why do you think that your brother was a likely candidate for substance abuse? Yeah, well, he actually, I mean, and I write this in the book, but if you had to build a boy out of the statistics, I can never say that word. Um, If you had to build a boy out of all of the different kind of indicators, um, you would 100% get my brother. So in terms of substance abuse, um, 80% of people with drug addiction problems um, have at least one episode of trauma in their life, whether it be against themselves or having witnessed something violent. Um, So that was my brother, typically around age eight, um, which was almost exactly my brother. Um, having uh, a father who smoked, bingo, uh, being uh, lower, like of a lower educated class, for want of a better word, well, that was my brother. Um, so all of these things lined up. In fact, it would have been, uh, it's not noteworthy in my mind that he became a drug addict. It would have been noteworthy if he didn't. Um, not that I necessarily believe in fate in that way, but it was very hard to get away from the claws of mm-hmm. um, that beginning. So let's go through the story. What, what happened when he got an $80,000 compensation payout. Yeah. This is for the accident. Yeah. So I still to this day never know where that actually came from. I don't know who paid that money. But he kind of, yeah, I mean, we were poor and we all were and he gets this $80,000 payout and kind of just wasted immediately. Like it's a lot of money. What has he wasted on? Um, Brand new ute, um, but not just any old ute. It's like fully tricked up, very expensive mag wheels, um, lettering on the back, special exhaust, like the whole kit and caboodle. And, you know, he doesn't waste all of it. I mean, he bought me a new computer, like a really nice one for $4,000, like a desktop, because mm. he knew that I needed that for school and work and all the rest of it. Where had he been living? Uh, so he was still living at home at this point. I mean, he got it when he turned 18. And this was really at the start. I mean, he'd been smoking pot um, all through high school, and which for us at the time was like, oh, my God, we've lost him. We've lost him to drugs. Um having no idea that there are way worse things out there, which is exactly what he got into. And early on, mm. he got, got involved in supply. And I can't remember the exact timeline of this, whether it was before or after. I think it was before, but he was running drugs in Sydney over New Year's and he was driving that brand new ute, which cost him 40 grand. And he flipped it end over end, driving back to, to Boona from Sydney because he was so tired. He hadn't been sleeping and just completely wrecked it. Not insured. So the way worse thing turned out to be the drug ice. Yeah. How did his behaviour change when he started taking that substance? Completely. I mean, my brother, for all his faults, was a cheeky boy and a likeable kid. Like even the school principal at Boone State High School, who was a really hard man, but a good man. He loved my brother. Like he thought my brother was a fundamentally good human being. And he was right, because he is. Um, he was a complete terror and was always in trouble. But he wasn't a bad person. Um, but the thing about ICE is that it doesn't matter who you are. Um, it turns you into someone completely different. I mean, the psychosis that gets attached with it is fundamentally inhuman. Um, and there are all these stories which I'd never really... Um, I'd only heard about, and, and then I saw them made flesh, I guess, in my brother. as how they, they become angry, um, psychotic, um, superhuman strength, um, and nothing really will stand in the way between them and what they want. And I watched that kind of descent into him becoming that person slowly, initially from a distance, and then saw it in bits and pieces when I was back home visiting mum, because at that point, he was still living with her, but she'd made him live under the house, because she just couldn't handle um, his friends, who he just would bring around at all hours to this house. And my mum's a really anxious person, and a complete (laughs) do-gooder, so this is a whole new world for her. If we can jump forward a bit, mm. what what happened when he incurred a heavy debt to a man named Carl? Oh, Carl. Because I think this story is kind of <laughs> illustrative of how drug abuse affects families yeah. in ways that sometimes you can't even imagine. Yeah, whole families. And the thing I'd always said to my brother was that, like, you know, before this had all happened, he had, you know, got into a fight with my mum and she went to call the police and he pulled the phone out of the wall. He'd punched my sister in the face. So he'd already done bad things. But the thing I'd always impressed upon him was, I don't care how well-intentioned you are, the fact is that this thing that you're in and the people that you surround you with are dangerous. And I don't... It sounds bad to say, but I'm like, I don't care what you do with your life. You can do whatever you want. But the fact is, you have involved mum in this by the simple fact that you live here. 
um, and people didn't respect the fact that this was her house. He didn't respect the fact that it was her house. And so when he incurred this drug debt to this um, local man called Carl, it came home to where he was, where my mum was. And, you know, at one point Carl kind of broke through mum's poor old fence, which there's a long story to that fence, like broke through this thing that had just been newly repaired and chased my brother through the yard with an axe um, while my mum was at home. And she's like upstairs screaming. And this is, it's hard to underscore just how innocent she was before all of this stuff happened. Like she just had never had any exposure whatsoever. I asked her once what the most criminal thing she's ever done was and she had to think about it for quite a few minutes before saying I think I was drunk in public once um, and when she says once she means just once uh, so this is a whole new world and these people were dangerous I mean they didn't care about human life um, that day my brother got lucky because other neighbours came and Carl got scared away did Carl ever come to you yeah yeah so Carl hit me up when I was in in Melbourne actually he just came on Facebook and messaged me we weren't friends but I noticed that I had an unread um, message and he basically said oh your brother said that um, you'd pay his drug debt and that's all cool so uh, yeah it's like 3,000 bucks or whatever um, just let me know how you're going to pay it and I'm like um, no uh, I'm like I don't want my brother to get hurt but I also I'm not going to get involved and he's like oh that's right he gave me your address anyway so we know where you live it's all sweet I'm friends with a bunch of bikey groups down here in Melbourne and thankfully that day I was actually moving house <laughs> so I was a bit more emboldened than I would have been otherwise and I just said Carl do fuck off. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care what you've done with your life, but I'm like, mere fact, because he was trying to say that the money was stolen. And I said, look, mate, if it's stolen, do what a normal person would do and report it to the police. I'm like, and the mere fact that you can't do that tells me that it wasn't stolen and that you're, in, you're up to no good and it's really not my problem. How does Carl respond to that? Not well. He called me a faggot um, and a bunch of other kind of <laughs> things. Like, in reaching for the easiest slur that he could find and at that point honestly it was fine i'm just like whatever mate like i actually feel sad for you that your life has come to this point i might be a faggot but i'm doing well for myself <laughs> tell me uh, about the incident <clears throat> at, at your mum's home in mm. 2017 and this is the one that finally made you lose it with him yeah yeah because i'd never i'm you know i don't like confrontation <laughs> right. so i'm not very good at it like i'm very fiercely protective of mum but whenever i was faced with my brother i would just try to give him a pep talk which was never that effective. <laughs> and so we were, yeah, so we were home. I was writing this book, actually. And mum and I were upstairs watching the third Bridget Jones movie, because she loves Bridget Jones. And I just heard this kind of commotion outside. And mum being mum, she just ran to the door straight away to check. I'm like, oh, it's just his friends, like, whatever. And I just heard her yelling and my brother start yelling, um... Fat boy, which is his, one of his other friends' name. Fat boy, go home. Fat boy, get out of here. Go home. And I didn't know what was going on. And I figured it was fine. And then mum kind of runs down the stairs to chase him away. And thank God that she kind of came back up because by the time I got to the landing, fat boy had disappeared. But then Scott, my brother's other friend who was under the house, comes out clutching his neck saying, I've been stabbed. I've been stabbed. And there is blood gushing from this wound, like in his neck near his jaw. And he kind of collapses on the ground and there's just blood everywhere. And at that point, I'm like, oh, okay, okay, this is not great. Mum's <laughs> um, on the phone to the cops. I'm on the phone to the ambulance. My brother's run over to the fence to reassure some passers-by that everything was fine, which it wasn't. Um, and, you know, it became this whole thing. We realised that, of course, the hospital up the road is open, even though it's Boona. So my brother gets his friend Scott in the car takes him to the hospital, dumps him there, literally just pushes him out, no idea whether he's going to live or die, and then comes back to get all his incriminating stuff from under the house because he knows that we would have called the cops. And then he says to us, I'm like, I've called the cops. And he says, well, what would you go and do that for? They make everything worse. And this is actually in my official police statement, but it's like, because your, your fucking mate <laughs> stabbed your other mate in the neck with a broken golf club. And it was just this world that he was living in. It was like, why would you call the cops? I'm like, because... There was a stabbing underneath your mum's house, like for crying out loud, and I just lost it with him. Like I was what, so what was mad. The conversation? What did well, you I'm just, I'm, I'm like, you, your friends. I've warned you about this so many times before, but your friends, you, you have put mum in danger, and like to me, that is unforgivable. Like you, do whatever you want with your life, but you have put mum in danger, and your friends have made her life dangerous. And he's like, what? And your friends don't? And I'm like, no, actually, they don't, because I don't hang around with fuckwits. Like I don't hang around with proper drug addicts. And, and I don't say that in a judgmental way, but I'm just like, at this point, I don't care. Like, just go. And, like, he was about to leave. He kind of packed everything up in this little satchel. 
he was about to leave, but his dog was still chained to the um, the clothesline. And I'm just like, take your fucking dog with you. And he's like, comes back obediently and takes the dog. And then the dog that I'd run through all the blood, so I chained her up because she was messing with the crime scene. And he just kind of disappears into the night. Um, no consequence. Like, nothing happens. So on that, let's push the stone roses <laughs> into the airways. Yeah. So what's the story behind this one? <clears throat> this one was kind of like... So, you know, this while I'm dealing with this kind of thing with my brother, and this is us in... Me in my 20s. And, you know, my 20s were not great. Um, and I think, you know, there was this kind of... I, I had problems with relationships. In fact, I never had one. And... I didn't really know what love was because I was so poisoned, I think, by my relationship with my father who had, you know, kind of had an affair and left me um, very visually on the station. And so I just didn't have any trust, I guess. And I didn't know how to trust people even though I really wanted to. And this song, um, Sally Cinnamon, was introduced to me by a guy that is so close to me. He's basically my brother. He's like second family. And he's way better at music than I am. And he's like, oh, did you go listen to this? And <clears throat> he'd just come back from Ireland where he'd um, been when, as a young pup, but he um, knocked a chick up and had a daughter. And so he was really sad. And I was really sad for less defined reasons. And we kind of, I remember driving from Brisbane to Grafton with him in the car, just listening to this song and thinking, yeah, this is this sums up a lot of the kind of unrequited uh feelings I have about people in my life and just not quite kind of taking them home I guess like being at the point where I could just truly love someone and I was and I didn't really understand the lyrics I didn't know whether it was speaking to me in that sense or not but it felt like it was and I think it was having now read them and it was just a beautiful song that kind of just made me melancholy I guess um not sad sad just melancholy it's beautiful Stone Roses on FBI Radio. Sally Cinnamon, thanks to Rick Morton. He's a writer and journalist, and today he is my guest on Out of the Box. Rick, when did you realise that you were gay as a teenager? Mm. <laughs> how, how did you try to conceal it? Oh, God. I, um, I was terrified of being gay. In, in a way, I still kind of am. Um, the power of it, you know, the sheer power of it. Um, but in high school particularly, I mean, like, I knew I couldn't come out and I knew I couldn't be obvious about it and so I used to have to kind of conduct these audits of how I moved my body um, 
and how I responded to other people about what everyone was talking about, which was sex and relationships. And so I just had to have, you know, as a journalist, you have a go bag with like all of your toiletries, like change your clothes, just in case you get sent away on a job. I had that, but for being gay, um, which and was what just... What was in your go bag? <laughs> my go bag was names of like three girls at school that I could say I was attracted to that were hot, um, just so I could pull them off the top of my head. It was like a, like a phylodex in my head. Um, didn't care anything, who, why, I just needed to have them ready to go. Um, and also songs that weren't completely gay, um, I saved those for private. Um, and just movements, like, I mean, I would I would literally stand in a mirror, in front of a mirror, and just be like, you can't move like that. You can't be limp-wristed. Um, you've got to walk more like a man, however that is. <laughs> like, none of this was scientific, as you'll understand. Did you ever have a girlfriend? <clears throat> Girlfriend's a strong word. I had two, as the story goes. Um, in hindsight, no. <laughs> um, the I had one in year nine, which was an accident. Um, it was when, like, Telstra three-way phone calls had just started on, like, landline, like, super old school tech. But my friend Danielle called me, and unbeknownst to me, uh, my other friend Brittany was on the line, but she was being quiet. And Danielle just kind of interrogated me and said, do you love Brittany? And I'm like, yeah, she's great. Love her. In the way that um, a gay man loves any woman. <laughs> and then at the end of it, she's like, so you'll go out with her? I'm like, oh. And then Brittany's there saying hello. And then all of a sudden I had a girlfriend. And it was the most stressful period of that part of my life. Like, Danielle was like a cop on the beat making sure that I would at least kiss Brittany on the cheek at school or hold her hand. And then she would, Danielle would tell me frequently if I was... She's like, I think you're ignoring Brittany. Why haven't you held hands with her this lunch break? And I'm like, look, man, <laughs> I just want to live my life. Um, but I felt like that was something necessary that I had to do just to prove that I was not gay. Um, God, I, I'm getting stressed just thinking about it now. You know? no, it, it makes for like a, <clears throat> some sort of Nickelodeon drama. It's, it's, it's very high drama um, and it is so uh, intense because <laughs> like I spent every day then fearing going to school, which sure. I never feared. And, you know, truly those years of concealment, which I know is a, you know, it's a very common experience, mm. How damaging are they? I, I I have a really firm... I mean, there's a lot of literature that backs this up. I mean, there's this thing called minority stress. And I think the thing... You don't have to have been gay-bashed or punched because you're gay, even though that has happened to many of us, and it's almost happened to me, and I've certainly had run-ins where people called me a faggot and all the rest of it that were terrifying and could have gone badly. But the thing about minority stress, and this applies to other minorities as well, is that... That doesn't have to happen to you every day. It just You just have to expect that it could. And the very idea of, A, stressing about getting found out that you're gay or that you're going to cop some homophobic abuse is the damage. I mean, that is the thing that kind of adds up day after day, week after week, year after year. And by the time you're ready to come out, and in my case it was five, six years later when I was 21, and even then I wasn't ready so much as I wanted to preempt it, you're so self-loathing I think and so prepared to accept the internal narrative that you've adopted is that you're hateful and that the world will judge you that it damages you for another five years at least if you're lucky um, longer still I mean it doesn't have to be that way obviously but in in my case it definitely was because I think I was a less exposed to gay narratives or queer narratives in my life I certainly wasn't I'd never met a gay person until I went to university I probably had met a gay person. I'd never met someone who was out. <clears throat> Certainly never met anyone who was in a relationship. Mm. And so I just had this completely distorted view of uh, who I was as a person, but also never had any of the practice. Like when everyone else was figuring out who they were and how to be around other people and how to have relationships, which is when you meant you're allowed to get stuff wrong when you're 15, 16, 17 in high school. Um, I didn't get any of that. And I was delayed for another decade because of it, really. What happened when you told your mum? Oh, she's beautiful. <laughs> That's a slightly a lighter <laughs> note before we go to some more um, music. I mean, it was like I, I told her because I thought – I told a couple of other people, friends from my country hometown, and I thought it was going to get back to us. I'm like, fuck it, I've just got to tell her. But I was on the Gold Coast and on, on the balcony of this hotel staying with a friend. Um, and so I drank like two litres of cask wine um, to lubricate myself. And then I just called her and I'm like, I've got something to tell you. And I told her, and her response was just uniquely Deb Morton. She, she's like, I've only got one question. I'm like, just one, that's great. She's like, was it the Ken doll I gave you when you were six? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God. I'm like, no, 
I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, I did find it weird as a six-year-old that you gave me a Ken doll, but I loved that Ken doll. Um, bless her. Honestly, she thought that that was some kind of causative factor in my life. I'm like, no, there was probably a, plenty of other things to be quite honest. <laughs> Rick, on that note, what do we play now? What can we play in tribute to? <laughs> Look, I think <laughs> even though I'm laughing now, I think, I mean, when I came out on the Gold Coast, I was around the age of 21. It was probably the first mental breakdown I had. Like a lot of things started going wrong. Um, I was poor, I wasn't coping in the real world, and I was also gay, which is um, a multiplying factor, I think. <laughs> and when I was coming out, I heard um, this song, um, it, uh, Standing Outside a Broken Phone Box with Money in My Hand by the Primitive Radio Gods, and there was a line in there. So I, I went through this phase of really hating organised religion, like, too much. Like, I just went mad about it, almost Richard Dawkins style. And there's a line in there saying, you know, we sit up, um, we sit outside at bars talking all night long about a God we've never seen. And it had such a, uh, like a slow, morbid kind of sound to it. And Bridie, my new best friend at that point, would pick me up from work. We were both newspaper cadets. And she'd drive me home and she knew that I loved that song because it made me sad. And she would just let me put it on and I'd just kind of look out the window being just deeply depressed um, on this kind of sun-soaked Gold Coast landscape. It was a very weird experience, but that song will forever be that. From the early 2000s, that was Primitive Radio Gods, brought into FBI Radio by writer and journalist Rick Mordens. His memoirs are called A Hundred Years of Dirt. Rick, so journalism, hmm. it's a surprising turn yes. from your life's trajectory. <laughs> uh, did, did you grow up uh, interested in politics or, or even consciously any of the kind of issues that you cover now as a journo? No. <laughs> I had no access to any of it. I mean, there are so many people who seem so political, Like, by the, even by the time they get to university, right, they join student politics. And it, it's so weird to me because I didn't even get that at university. I certainly didn't have it beforehand. I mean, my access to politics was the nightly commercial TV news and I knew who the prime minister was and occasionally the opposition leader, and that was it. And I had no interest or understanding of why it should interest me. And I certainly didn't have any interest, broadly speaking, in policy because I wasn't that smart. I wasn't that well-read. I didn't read smartly. 
I think the only newspaper we read was the Sunday Mail, which mum would get me every Sunday morning before I got out of bed with a Leamington from the, <laughs> from the bakery, and I just loved it. Because at that point I wanted to be a journalist, but I had a completely distorted idea of what it was. Um, first of all, I mean, the reason I wanted to become one was because I saw a man in a suit get out of a Channel 9 helicopter <laughs> when it landed in my hometown, and I thought, wow, they must earn a lot of money. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like that was my ticket to being rich. Now, I'm an idiot. What over a decade of being corrected? <laughs> yeah, um, it, like to be wrong is one thing, but to be corrected every day. <laughs> so, so what was your political education? How did you make it happen for yourself? I, I honestly, it took a long time. So, I mean, I was always interested in like local council and stuff like that when I was um, in high school, and I joined like the youth council and stuff like that. But it was very low key, and I didn't know anything about the political parties. I didn't know anything about our former prime ministers. And when I went to uni, my best friend Bridie did it. We had to do a presentation on our favourite Prime Minister. Um, and she did it on Gough Whitlam at this private university where everybody booed her. <laughs> and I'm like, she's like, he's the best Prime Minister that's ever lived. And I'm like, why? And she's like, oh, Ricky, don't you understand? Like, he's the reason your mum was able to bring you up. I'm like, what? And that's when I first kind of started to realise I took this politics class and I started to learn a little bit more about the history. But honestly, my, my real introduction to that really didn't come i mean even though i worked for an education minister in queensland i still knew nothing I knew nothing about the factions i knew nothing i didn't join any party i just happened to be seconded i was 23 i was so dumb <laughs> and it really didn't start until i worked for the australian um for better or worse which was in 2012 and it just made me realize how naive i had been about almost everything in my life up until that point and that's when i became interested in social policy i mean i was interested in justice i guess for people like my mum um, and for people like me when I was a kid, making sure that they get access to things. So broadly I was into it, but it didn't. I never really understood the nuance of policy until I started writing about it. Yeah. So that process of moving from a non-middle-class background into the kind of very middle-class yeah. world... comfortably middle-class. Right, I mean, it's... In, in myself included now as a, you know, on paper. Sure, sure, but the trajectory is exceptional. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe to say the least. If I'd known what it was going to be like, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Explain that. Well, I guess I mean I the the whole reason I've ever done anything. I guess sometimes naivety can be a blessing because I didn't know if I'd known you know the theory of how difficult it would be to make it as a you know an impoverished kid in a middle class world, particularly in a world that has um, kind of a premium on culture and access to knowledge and information and the way the world works, which is so hard to understand if you've always had that knowledge. Um, it's only when you haven't had it that you realise how dumb you sound in normal conversation. And so if I'd known, because I'm such an anxious person, if I'd known that I was going to be, if I'd had any self-awareness whatsoever about how I sounded and acted when I was 21, 22 in this world, I would have been mortified and ashamed because I would have felt the judgement of everyone else, even if that wasn't there, if you know what I mean. It's hard to explain. Uh, what does that say for, like, other kids, people like you that or that have a sim similar background as you mm. that are you know, trying to or would even be thinking about hacking into the what is possibly an increasingly narrowing selection yeah. of, of, of people in Australia's kind of media class? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, if you... Hopefully you're as, as naive as I was <laughs> because... It is hard, but if you're not, then do it for the great reason of spite. <laughs> like, you should be there. Um, we deserve to be there. We deserve to have our voices heard. Um, and the people about whom we write deserve to be understood by people who understand them. Mm. Um, so do it out of spite. <laughs> Just get in everyone's faces and be really annoying, which is the job of being a journalist anyway. Sure. I mean, there's a lot said about... Uh uh, like uh, di diversity of along yeah. the lines of race and gender in the media. Um, I mean, there's all incredibly there's, important. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's organisations set up um, specifically with that purpose in mind. Do you think that there's room to think more about class representation? I think um, having no experience of race representation, right? So I think that's obviously important, and 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 same with gender quotas. But genuinely, I think even for people from different races and cultures, class has such explanatory power. Um, and so to not even talk about it in these, it's like, oh, why aren't we getting the diversity of views in the newsroom to completely exclude class from that? Because, you know, you can be a poor migrant or a rich migrant and some of your experiences will be similar based on race. But again, the rich migrant will have no understanding of what it was like to struggle. 
Um, and that is so um, powerful and statistically significant, I think, in the way newsrooms are shaped. So you've got to have that conversation. You've got to include that. I want to finish by asking you about the election. Mm. Uh, the media class talks a lot about it, and particularly there's been a lot of conversation about Queensland. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in kind of how broadly you think things have played out actually coming from that background. I mean, I'm not yeah. sure if Charlotte Laws, the farm, was in one of those key electorates that was swung the election. No, but, I think, liberals, but um, I think I grew up around some of the other electorates that did. I mean, Charleville was in a very safe seat. Sure. Um, it's a fucking, what's his name? I always forget the name. Maranoa. So um, one of the biggest and safest seats in the country. But Queensland, so I, I get it, right? So the thing that makes me mad is that people are like, oh, Queensland fucking put a terrible prime minister in power again. And whatever your views about that. The thing is, I know those people. I grew up with them. And I don't like their politics. I don't like that they're racist or uh, anti-immigration or that they don't fully understand um, the views they have or seem to have. But they have them, and they're not monsters. The problem with making everyone a monster is that you think you're out there fighting on the side of unequivocally good and that you're kind of Van Helsing or whatever and you just got to put a, a bow and arrow through some bat's face. Like, that's the problem when you make everyone a monster. The, the real issue is that these people are regular people, and if you met them in the street and had a normal conversation, you wouldn't be able to tell that they voted for Pauline Hanson of One Nation. And as a progressive force, if you want to represent those people who are working class or not particularly well-educated, sneering at them ain't going to get them on board. You ain't ever changed anyone's mind by yelling at them for being racist. I was racist when I was young because my mum's a little bit racist. She's not a bad person, <laughs> like she's not a lovely person, but we just didn't have any exposure to it. And stuff you don't know about is scary. And my whole life has been spent learning more. And I, I can't tell you where I would have ended up if I just had you know, kind of this woke Twitter brigade yelling at me my entire life. Um, I, it's not like I would have doubled down to be racist despite them, but it also isn't conducive to having a proper discussion and showing people why they should think more enlightened, uh, will be more enlightened about the world. Um, show, don't tell. With that call to arms slash reality check. I just, yeah, I just think you can't get these people offside. Like, totally. no one's expecting you to be friends with Hitler, Right. Um, and you don't even have to be friends with them, but you do have to understand that they exist because if you don't, look what happens. You lose an entire election. So if you're happy with that, by all means. <laughs> yeah. What can we play to finish off this episode? Let's do a happy the song. Box, what, what can we finish <laughs> on? <laughs> um, it's actually, uh, I got my mind set on you by George Harrison. Now, this is, again, like all songs in my life. I didn't even know this existed until three years ago. And it was at like one of the happiest moments of my life. I was writing this book. And I was staying with my friends in Melbourne who were in a band. And they just had the best parties filled with the nicest, loveliest people where you just feel so welcome. And I was having a smoke in the garden and this song came on. And I just remember feeling so compelled to just go and find everyone I love and dance with them because it's got such a good beat, um, if that is the right word to describe it. And um, whenever this song is played now, I just feel instantly happy. Like it's just um, emblematic of a time in my life where I felt comfortable and confident and loved. So with George Harrison, I'd like to, of course, thank my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole DiPaolo for another week. And Rick Morton, thank you for this momentous episode of thank Out you, of the Box. Thank you for having me at all. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. got my mind set And this time I know it's real The feeling that I feel
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.